Hey, Fade to Gray family, this is Chris. Fade to Gray is brought to you by the wonderful members of our Patreon who have decided that they'd like to spend at least $1 a month supporting the podcast. You can help Fade to Gray continue to put out great quality episodes like the one you're about to listen to right now. Some of the benefits of joining our Patreon group are bonus episodes. For an example, we did a bonus episode with Matt Carter that many of you have never heard because you're not part of the Patreon. We'll drop you into our exclusive Marco Polo group where you can chat with all of us and many of our guests. Head on over to fadedegraypodcast.com and sign up to be part of our family today. Ladies and idiots. This is the Fade to Gray Podcast. Is there a God? I do believe in Jesus and I do believe in God. I just think religion fucks up everything. You can't go there. Jesus deserves a better Christianity. God was breathing. God was water. God was shoved down your throat. We just don't know, and nobody wants to admit it. Christianity's like autism. There's a wide spectrum of it. This changes everything. Hello, everyone. This is Seth with the Fade to Gray podcast. And today, um, Chris, Lena, and Omar and I have the privilege of sitting down with the full-time pastor, occasional author, and would-be mountaineer, Brian Zahn. Brian Zahn is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church, a non-denominational Christian congregation in St. Joseph, Missouri. Brian and his wife, Perry, founded the church in 1981. Brian is also the author of several books, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, and unconditional, the call of Jesus to radical forgiveness. And I got to meet Brian when I was a teenager. I grew up in a small town near St. Joe, about an hour north. And I went to a small um, Southern Baptist church growing up, and I learned about Brian Zahn's non-denominational church. And it was so exciting for me at that time because I was really seeking answers and seeking truth. And the way that Brian preached um, was so eloquent and was very, it was an intellectual ascent that I was seeking at that age. I was so moved by that that I actually spent an entire year um, interning with Brian. So I am just so thankful that you've joined the conversation with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Seth. It's good to be with you again after quite a long while, it seems like. Yeah. Reunited. <laughs> That's actually something I, I want to talk about a little bit in in looking at the trajectory of your ministry and really how you have become a theologian. How did Word of Life start? Because it's a oh it's a, man, it's a pretty big deal now, isn't it? So how did this all how did well, this all get started? Okay, here here's the story. I'll try not to you know if you get bored, interrupt at some point and say, "Do you hear that? Hear that thunder?" <laughs> Got a big thunderstorm going on right now. Um, well, uh, let's get this out of the way. I'm 60 years old, so people not, don't have to be wondering, how old is that guy? <laughs> uh, I'm that old. Um, I had a real dramatic encounter with Jesus. Now, I, I say it just like that, right? I can't, I can't prove it. It can't be disproven. I just... I just bear witness, and I can either be believed or doubted. But when I was 16 years old, I had this dramatic encounter with Jesus. And overnight, I went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. 
although I still dig Zeppelin, but <laughs> uh, but it, it was it was a stunning thing. It was a Damascus Road sort of thing. I mean, I don't think those need to be typical of how people encounter Christ, but that's the way it worked for me. And it was um, kind of everybody knew it. And back then, everybody called me Fry. That was my nickname. Nobody called me Pastor Brian. <laughs> they called me Fry. And uh, so, you know, after a few weeks had gone by and I was this... Some people call new, me that now, too. <laughs> this, this new entity, people would say, Fry, I can't believe what's happened to you. And I'd say, I can't believe it either, but it's happened. Um by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry called the Catacombs. And this is during the Jesus Movement. Does it? Do you all know what I when I say the Jesus Movement? Yes, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, we had another yeah. guest that was really impacted by the Jesus Movement recently I mean, too. It so. was a phenomenal thing. It was a. It was kind of this spiritual stream flowing through the counterculture movement, and so you have you have the baby boomers coming of age in the 60s. Then learning about the, t- the Great War, the World War II, that their parents have lived through in one way or another. And you have the hippies that are, that are going to react against war and, and materialism. Um, but then you had people that said, okay, that, that's, that's a right impulse, but we need a better Messiah than the Beatles. <laughs> and, and they found Jesus. And it was pretty phenomenal. And it, it was big enough, you know, that it was... I remember it being on the cover of Time magazine, the Jesus Movement. Um, if you've ever been in a church where on a Sunday morning they are playing guitars, electric guitars and drums, that's a direct effect of the Jesus Movement. So anyway, um, I'm 17 years old. I'm leading a thing called the Catacombs. We call it the Catacombs because it met in the basement of a dive bar <laughs> on Third Street in St. Joseph, so it was kind of subterranean and dingy, and but we also had this sense that we were connected to the original Jesus movement, not the one of the 1970s, but the one of the 70s, <laughs> the <laughs> AD 70s, and we had that sense, and um, you know, the coffee house was really a, it was more of a music venue, so, because that was the driving force of the Jesus movement, was music. And that's how I got to know all these people. Keith Green, Larry Norman, Phil Keggy, all those people. Um, I, I would be one of the very youngest in the Jesus movement. To have actually been in it, I would be one of the youngest. And um, by the time I was 22, the catacombs just sort of turned into our church. I mean, it, it just became a church. <laughs> I don't know how else mm-hmm. to say it. So... Uh, but but I had already been doing the work of a pastor when I officially became a pastor at age 22. So I tell people, look, I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> and I don't recommend that. That's not a pattern, but it's it's just what happened. And so Word of Life Church is a non-denominational, almost accidental church. Um, I don't even believe in non-denominational churches. I don't think it's a good idea. But it just happened. It's just my story. It's what happened. Um, so we started on, we were relatively small, and we stayed small for seven years or so. And then the church started to grow, and then it exploded, and it became quite big. In fact, at one point, we were identified by whoever, these people that like to keep score, as one of the 20th, the, the, one of the 20 fastest growing churches in America. Oh, wow. Ta-da! You know. Wow, look at me. And, uh, Do you remember the year? 
yeah, that was maybe, I'm trying to think now. I would say it was about 97, 98, something like that. Um, and we built buildings and grew and grew and grew and grew. And by the time I hit 40, so, so you know, I'm covering just a lot of period here. I started 16, sure. I encountered Jesus, 22, I'm a pastor. Then it's growing. And by the time I'm 40, I began to have some growing dis-ease. I was like, I, I never lost my fascination with Jesus. But I began to think the Jesus that captured my heart as a teenager deserves a better Christianity than what I see. Preach. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do about it. Look, I had no seminary training. I had no training at all. I, I just stumbled into this thing and was doing it. Um, so I didn't know what to do. I was, I describe it this way, I was embarrassingly ignorant of the good stuff. So I didn't know what to do. I just had this instinct, okay, I'm just going to back up, and I'm going to start from the beginning. So I started reading the church fathers, becoming familiar with patristics. I started reading philosophy because I'd always kind of liked philosophy, but, you know, in a charismatic church, that's not generally encouraged. And so, so I started reading philosophy uh, on the sly, you know. I'm reading Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. <laughs> um, and then, then I just thought, okay, I'm just going to devote myself to the canon of Western literature. Just, you know, whatever is the great novels of Western literature. And so that's what I'm reading. And that kind of carries me for about five years. But by the time I was 45, or when I tell the story, I usually say halfway to 90, because <laughs> that puts the fear of God in you. I was halfway to 90, and I just thought, okay, something's got to give here. I, I just, and I did something, this is my story, okay? Uh, I did something that's ridiculous, absurd, crazy. I don't recommend it. Don't ever do anything like this. But I did it. I could never do it again. I would never want to do it again. But I began the first 22 days of 2004. I was 45. Um, doing nothing but praying. Nothing but praying. Sleeping at night and preaching when I was supposed to for 22 days. I didn't eat. Um, I got down to 130 pounds. Wow. People thought I was dying. And I thought I was dying. I was dying. Whole first half of life was dying. And I came through that period somehow different. It's like, uh, I know, I, 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 had, I had left. I mean, you understand that by all the metrics that Americans like to measure success, I was very successful. And anyone with you know, just good sense would just say, okay, just ride this horse. Just, just keep doing this. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't. And so I came out of that time, and I knew I was different, but I still didn't know what to do. And I prayed one day. I said, God, show me what to read. It was a very sincere prayer. God, show me what, because I had this sense, okay, I'm missing something. There's, I'm reading patristics. I'm reading philosophy. I'm reading canon of Western literature, but I need something really contemporary. But I didn't know of it. I mean, I was like embarrassingly ignorant of the good stuff. And I, I prayed. I said, God, show me what to read. Uh, like two minutes later, my wife walks in the room, Perry. She had no idea that I just prayed this. She walks up to me, hands me a book, and says, Here, I think you should read this. <laughs> wow. And it was a, the book that she handed me, she had not read. In fact, to this day, we don't know how it got in our house. She found it and looked at it and thought, hey, Maybe Brian would like to read this. And she walks up and she handed me this book. And the book was The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. 
and I was on a flight somewhere the next day, and I started reading that, and it was like, it was like a door was kicked open in my mind. And then I went into this period of time, and it's another, I could never replicate this. I would say from 2004 to maybe 2008, I, I read everything. <laughs> Because I found Dallas Willard, and that led to N.T. Wright, and that led to Stanley Hirewas, and that led to Carl Bart and David Bentley Hart, and on and on and on and on it goes. And I just began, I became very serious about being a participant in the ongoing conversation of God revealed in Christ that is Christian theology. But the price to really be a serious participant is to know what is already said. So I was reading mostly every night from 6 to midnight. And I never felt that it was work. It was never lab- laborious. It was, it was like, where have you been all my life? I had struck gold and couldn't pull it out of the ground fast enough. But okay, hold, let, me, let, me, let me finish this one section here. So the Jesus movement, Jesus freak, charismatic, is now reading hardcore academic theology. That's going to change you. And it did change me, and it changed my preaching, and that's when the hard times came, at least as far as losing a 1,000 members of my church. A perfect wrap-up, because that was actually going to be my question, how you wrapped that up back into the Jesus Jesus movement. Kind of, would you say that that was a catalyst in you? Like, So that's what I'm saying. Were you, were you grow, did you grow up in a Christian environment? Did you have fundamentalist yeah. pa- like parents? No, I grew up in a—it was a Southern Baptist church— the church itself may have been fundamentalist. It's hard for me to remember. It existed more on the periphery of my life. My parents absolutely were not fundamentalists. Uh, my father was a judge, uh, well-read, uh, intelligent man, and in fact was maybe the farthest thing from a fundamentalist. He was a very uh, wise, kind, generous soul. Sounds like he probably had a pretty good impact in your life. I actually, too. I actually had a, had a wonderful uh, family life. Now I was I was a problem until at 16 I had my Jesus encounter. I was rebellious, troublemaker, getting in trouble in school. I was on a bad trajectory. I, I needed something like that to happen or you know I'd have been a mess. And that's not any commentary on anybody other than myself. I was just that way. I was just always kind of a rebel. As far as the Jesus movement and the, and the, kind of like the next the progression thereof. You know, it's it's kind of seems like the cho- like me. I'm like the child of a Jesus movement. Like, mm-hmm. like my my grandparents, my parents. That's uh, they're all heavily impacted by that. Um, some of the people that are influencing you know church movement and culture, like yourself now, were heavily impacted by that. And um, I'm just wondering if the net the natural progression of the Jesus movement brings you out of just fundamentalism altogether as, as you follow Jesus naturally, I guess is my question. Mm, well, yeah, my experience was, uh, I think very fondly of the Jesus movement. There was something pure. It's aptly named. It really was centered on Jesus. It had all kinds of problems. Its eschatology was horrible. Um, it had a very low view of church, um, but there was something pure there. But what happened is the Jesus movement funneled me into the charismatic movement, which I describe as good until it wasn't. But as the years roll by, one thing leads to another. So that when I was about 40, I woke up and I thought, 
I'm just a like I'm just like a Republican. <laughs> and that isn't what I got into this thing for. Exactly. I was a I was a radical Jesus freak. I was challenging the assumed cultural values. I made people nervous. Now I feel like I'm just, you know, accommodated. I feel like I'm, you know, and I thought, I really felt like I was disappearing. I felt like I was being erased. And Soren Kierkegaard, he had this little prayer. He prayed, he said, uh, now by the help of God, I shall become myself. I was 45, and I was about to disappear. I was about to lose my soul. I was about to become someone I never set out to be or never wanted to be, but it just happened. Getting swallowed up by the machine. Right. And I remember I was going through the Detroit airport, and I was on one of those moving walkways, and I was just thinking about that. And it was like a desperate moment. And I I was by myself. By that, I mean no one was traveling with me, but of course you're in an airport. People are all around. And I just blurted out. I said, now by the help of God, I shall become myself. <laughs> and people are in there kind of stared. And I didn't care. I thought, okay, this is like the last chance for me. Um, I don't know what you guys do on this podcast. Well, that's the, that's what I was going to say. We, we definitely are in circles and our circle ourselves are all about questioning basically the... <sighs> can, can I read you something? Yeah, hold on a second, because I, lo- I love what you're saying here, and I love how it's tied into basically like who we are and how important like the Jesus movement of our parents' generation mm-hmm. has has influenced just our discontent with church now. Because I feel like the circles that we're running in, uh, some of the circles that we're kind of community that we're creating ourselves, is there's a lot of people who feel, feel the way you did. They're feeling it at a much younger age, and it's starting to become glaringly well, obvious now more and more to people. I, I so, look back... This is my most current book, Postcards from Babylon, The Church in American Exile. I wrote it with my Jesus movement compadres in mind, who were these radical Jesus freaks in 1974, and today they've turned into a trumper. Mm -hmm. And I just find that so disheartening, a kind of tragedy. So I, I, I wrote a book for them. But I have a poem in here. I'm going to read a poem. I don't Please know. do. You can't, you, you can't stop me. Uh, I'm going to do it. <laughs> uh, I, I write poems now and then, but I never. they just come to me as they come to me. I don't like chase them with a butterfly net. They just come or they don't. This is a poem that, that you're not going to get all of the illusions, but you'll get the spirit of it. Uh, there's all kinds of illusions in here that probably, unless you really know my story, you wouldn't figure out. But yeah, I still think it's pertinent. It's called The Last Train Out of Monkey Town. He caught the last train out of Monkey Town, bought a ticket on Easter 04 and was eastbound, left the wagon train beamed from outer space, said adios to the obtuse and turned his face towards something he hoped was there. Was it the conductor's last call? With a shudder he sometimes wonders what would have happened had he missed that train. He fears he'd have shrunk smaller and smaller until he disappeared, not entirely invisible, but totally unrecognizable to who he was supposed to be, the one he still hopes to become. Curiosity may have killed some cat, but not that cat. 
For that cat, curiosity was a saving grace, salvation from the dismal fate of the incurious, the last man who invents happiness, or so he thinks, while he sits on his couch with 700 channels and stupidly blinks. That curious cat will tell you, age may steal your good looks and jump shot, but don't let it abscond with your curiosity. What's the point of living four score if you know it all in the first score? Don't sit there until the raven croaks nevermore. A world of wonder lies beyond an untried door. Truth is not a laminated card you carry in your pocket. Truth is a long, hard road, and you have to walk it. And you might as well know it's a toll road, too. You will be required to sacrifice your certitude. But that's okay. It's only a small pittance to bid good riddance to a dead-end existence. Was it a train he caught or a road he walked? Seems the metaphors got mixed. Oh well, whether he hit the road or rode the rails, he thanks God for the grace to bid farewell to the backwaters of Monkey Town for a journey through dark heat to a new dawn of becoming, becoming, becoming. And so that's my story in a poem. I like it. I'm curious about Monkey Town. <laughs> is that, uh, is there's, that there's your... A, there's a lot going on there. Um yeah. There is a place near here where I where I'm from that's called Monkey Town, so that gives it a geographical proximity to where I've lived my life. It's also a reference to the Scopes Monkey Trial and fundamentalism, of being caught up in fundamentalism. I see. Uh, so there's two things going on there. So that's that's one part of this poem I've explained to you. But that's what that means. So okay, you're you're in this position where you've got this church. And you've got how many members? Thousands? Yeah. And you have this revelation that something's just not right. You are Mm -hmm. what you're supposed to be is disappearing. Would you say that this is the beginning of some sort of, uh, and the buzzword nowadays is deconstruction. Would you say that this is the beginning of some sort of deconstruction for you? This is what people, this has become the definitive term. Uh, deconstruction actually is a philosophical term coming from Jacques Derrida, who means something a little bit different, but it's it still pertains. I never use that metaphor because it is a metaphor. Um, I understand it. I understand the term deconstruction. I totally get it. I understand it. I don't default to it. It isn't how I think about it, but if other people use it, then I get it. I don't use it for my own story because it sounds a bit too volatile, a a bit too violent. Uh, If all you ever do is deconstruct, you're just left with a heap of rubble. You can't deconstruct forever and and, um, have anything left. For me, and it's why it's the title of my memoir, uh, the default metaphor is water turned to wine. I, I think of it like this, okay, I'm 45 years old, I'm at the party, the but the wine has ran out. Everybody's about just to go home, pack it in. Again, I wasn't disenchanted with Jesus, but with the Christianity that surrounded him. And I thought, well, this party's lame. You know, this party's over. And then when I just was about to think, this is as good as it gets, Jesus does a miracle and turns that which was weak and watery, uninspiring, into something that's rich, robust, and intoxicating. So... Uh, now, uh, other people's story may be, in fact, more volatile and violent. And so deconstruction, I mean, there are times when the whole wing of our theological house, maybe we need to take a wrecking ball to it. Uh, probably my eschatology <laughs> had a wrecking ball taken to it. But still, 
Uh, yes, what I'm describing is what most people today, or a lot of people call deconstruction. I like some other metaphors, but that's what we're talking about. Okay. But but I never saw it as losing something. I never saw it as, I mean, yes, there were things I left behind and moved on, but for me, it was, actually, it was never a, personally, it wasn't a scary time. It was thrilling. The only thing that was scary was, am I going to lose the whole church? Because I thought they would come with me, and then I found out more than a thousand of them didn't. And uh, these are people that I'd done life with, that maybe I had baptized, and their children, and maybe I'd married them, and their children. And, and they were, although here's an interesting phenomenon. When, when people were leaving our church peers, my age, let's say people in their 50s, uh, their adult children were staying, saying, Mom and Dad, you can leave if you want. This is what's keeping us in Christianity. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was always something of a consolation to me. I thought, okay, that, that seems good if the children are staying. Uh, now, they don't have any money, or if they do, they don't want to give it. But, right. <laughs> but, but still, I thought, okay, this seems to be a good sign. What, what happened was is, is just so much of, of my generation got conscripted into becoming little more than the religious wing of the Republican Party. And it happened beginning in the 80s with Falwell and Pat Robertson and all of that religious right. And they were completely invested in that. And when I began to really pull away from that, and not just pull away from it, but renounce it, denounce it, critique it, prophesy against it, that's, that really created something of an exodus. So be it. I, the, the best way to start, you say, well, you lost a thousand people. Yeah, more than a thousand. Who did you lose? Here in this, this will sound like a, just kind of like a slam, but I really think it's the most succinct, accurate way to describe who I lost. I lost all my Fox News Christians. Hmm. And so if you're going to if you're imbibing Fox News hours a day and then you come and hear me preach for 35 minutes on a Sunday morning at some point you're going to have to make a decision you're going to have to go with one or the other and and about a thousand of my I lost out to Sean Hannity or whoever <laughs> would you say that that metaphorical you know spiritual turning from water to wine for you um predated the emergent church and kind of like maybe set the ground for that you movement? Know, no, well, no, no. It happened at that time. But here's the funny thing. Um, I wasn't reading. At, th- at this time, I didn't. I know Brian McLaren now, and I, he's a friend. Uh, he endorsed my this latest book, says some real nice things about it. Um, <laughs> but I didn't know him then. Guy. I, I, I had no idea who he was. And two things kept happening all the time. People would say, people would come up and say, you're reading Brian McLaren. I said, who? I, I, honestly, I'd never heard of him. I said, no, I never heard of him. Uh, and they say, you're, you're emergent. I said, I'm a what? <laughs> I'm emergent? <laughs> and so people were identifying me with this movement, but I wasn't being influenced by it. It was just something that was happening. Now, eventually I came to know I know Tony Jones. I know Brian McC- I know these people. Um, but it's more like we arrived at the same place. Not that we were influenced. It's, I don't, you remember the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and people are making the devil's tower out of their mashed potatoes. And <laughs> they all end up <laughs> drawn there. That was kind of what was happening to some of us. Some of us were sensing the same thing. Um, emergent, though, was... I, I never heard it used 
really other than a pejorative. I never heard anyone use it like as a technical term. It was it was always just kind of a curse word. <laughs> so, but yeah, I was I was in that and didn't know it really, if that makes sense. So, you're in this whole process of it sounds like kind of rediscovering the Jesus that you fell in love with and your relationship with him and you're doing yeah. all of this studying and I'm curious how that impacted your view of scripture. So, I mean, how a lot of people, I've, I've Googled you, so, so I know some people don't necessarily agree with some of the things you have to say. So where do you fall on, you know, the inerrancy right. of Scripture and your views of the Bible, and how did that impact it? Well, I, I think I have a very high view of Scripture. I mean, it is our canonical text. I've lived my life in the text that is the Bible. Uh, but inerrancy is a modern term. It's not, it's not something the Bible claims for itself. It's not something the church has historically claimed for the Bible. Uh, I think it's... What happened is this. Um, 500 years ago, there was a divorce in the Western church. We call it the Protestant Reformation. Uh, something had to happen. There needed to be some reform. The, the Renaissance church was terribly corrupt, and something had to happen. But what we got was a little bit of reform, but mostly a divorce. And we are all products of a divorce. You know, if children go through a, a divorce, you, you tell them it's not your fault, you know. And, and so, so I want to say to, it's not your fault. <laughs> uh, but those of us that ended up with Protestant dad... You, know, you have Catholic mom and Protestant dad. Those of us that ended up with Protestant dad, in the divorce settlement, all we got was the Bible. Catholic mom got everything else. Catholic mom got the church, the sacraments, the tradition, all of that. The only thing Protestant dad got was the Bible. Now, Protestant dad made the most of it and clung to the Bible for dear life and did a lot of good work with it. But in the end, Protestant dad puts more pressure on the Bible than the Bible can bear. It cannot live up to those expectations. And so that's where we are inventing doctrines of inerrancy and things like that. Here's what I say. Let's talk about the Old Testament, although you could say the same for the New. But for the, the old, what is the Old Testament? The Old Testament is the inspired telling of Israel's story as they come to know the living God. But you, you have to stay on the journey. It... it it's a, it's a record of Israel's journey of discovery. But you can't stop at any point along the way. I mean, along the way, assumptions are made. That's why we stay on the journey until we finally reach Jesus. Another way of saying it, and you know, listen carefully to this, the Bible does not stand above the story it tells, but is itself fully immersed in the story. The Bible itself is on the quest to discover the true Word of God. So, for example, if I ask the Old Testament, I say, hey, Old Testament, um, does God require ritual blood sacrifice? Well, what happens is a fistfight breaks out. Uh, Moses and uh, the priestly sources are going to say, absolutely, yes, and they can show me the text. God, re but, but you get into the psalmists and the prophets, and they're saying, yeah, I don't think so. And so, so it's, a, it's an inspired telling of Israel's story to come to know the living God, but it isn't some sort of—the uh, Bible is not divine. The Bible is an encounter with 
It is a journal of record of people that are receiving revelation. What, what, what many fundamentalists do is they try to make Jesus and the Bible synonymous. And it, that simply doesn't work. There's a verse that says it. What does it say? Isn't, isn't it John 1? In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. But the Logos is not the Bible. The Logos is Jesus. The Logos is the logic of God. It's God's reflection upon God's own self. It abides in eternity. The, the, what the Bible is, the Bible. I don't mind calling the Bible the Word of God in a penultimate sense, in that it is an inspired witness to what is the true Word of God, who is Jesus. So, uh, okay, I'll say it this way. Do I believe in the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God? Yes, His name is Jesus. What the Bible is, is our canonical witness to that revelation of God that is the Word, that is the Logos, that is Christ. So, for example, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and apart from Him nothing was made that was made, etc. You get down to verse 14, and the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and of His fullness we have received grace upon grace. And then it says, it says this, The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And then the clincher, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is near the Father's heart, He has made Him known. So, when John writes, No one has ever seen God at any time, someone says, What? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Abraham saw God, had a meal with him under the oaks of Mamre. Uh, Jacob saw God at Bethel with a ladder and the angels going up and down. Uh, Moses saw God on Mount Sinai. Moses took the 70 elders of Israel. They saw God, ate and drank. That's what it says. Isaiah had visions of God in the, in the temple in the year King Uzziah died. Uh, Ezekiel saw visions of God by the river Kibar. And John will say, look, you don't have to teach me the Bible. I know what it says. But no matter what dreams, visions, revelations, epiphanies, Christophanies, theophanies people had in the past, compare, compared to the revelation of God we have in Jesus Christ, no one has ever seen God. So the Bible is not an end in itself. It's a witness to what we are called to have faith in, and that is Jesus. The Bible never asks us to believe the Bible. The Bible asks us to believe God. That was a rant. So, well, it was a good one. <laughs> this is the thing, is that for me, I, and I understand a lot of this has to do with fundamentalism, but I learned to find security in the Bible. Yeah, I, I used I, I used the Bible to confirm what I was doing and the security I felt and who I was in the world. And yeah, this is what the Bible. See, people say, well, no, no. If you talk like this, Brian, you're on a slippery slope. I said, no, you're on the slippery slope. The moment you decide that the Bible can confirm your certitude, because what can't you prove by the Bible? You tell me what you want to believe, what, what politics you want to have, what theology you want to have. Give me five minutes. I'll give you your verses. See, one of the embarrassing things about the Bible is that it, it does not give us an unequivocal condemnation of the institution of slavery. The Bible simply assumes that slavery is an inevitable institution. Now, to the Bible's defense, generally, not always, but generally when the Bible talks about slavery, it's trying to mitigate the suffering, although you do have Exodus 21, verses 20 and 21, 
which says, if a slave owner beats a slave, male or female, and they die, uh, they shall make recompense. But if the slave lives a day or two, there shall be no punishment, for the slave is the owner's property. <laughs> Isn't that a great couple of verses there? So, now, now, yeah, now, well... So, so, so if you say, okay, the Bible is the perfect revelation of God, it's, inerr- it's, in, it's inerrant, it's infallible, then you're stuck with this problem about slavery. I don't have that problem because what I talk about is I talk about Christianity as the tree rooted in the soil of Scripture. We're rooted in the soil of Scripture, but we're not limited to that. So Christianity is capable of, in, of producing entire boughs of abolition because the Bible, because Christian ethical statements are not limited to the text of Scripture. We're rooted in the text of Scripture, but we're not limited to it. We've talked about this before, I think 10 years ago, and I'm mm-hmm. bringing it back up. But where do, you la- where do you land on homosexuality specifically? Because I've seen the Bible used against me more times than for me. Right. And, and as a Christian, for the last 30 years, I've tried to use the Bible to justify myself in God, but at the same time, I'm being told the opposite. And anymore, I don't know what to believe. Because all I have in looking at Christianity and looking at being gay, the only thing I really have to reference to find any security in is scripture. Brian, before you answer that question, Brian, I got a question for Seth, because- Because that that, that answer is gonna take me like forever. Exactly. Exactly. And and Seth, this is is this crazy because that how do you how do you find security and safety in a in a Bible that's also sending you to hell? How how does that bring you? What I mean is, it's the only reference I have to what God believes or who God is. Well, don't you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Yeah, it's 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 not your only. It it is a it is a primary source of revelation, but it's not your only source. Well, the church isn't a great place to turn. Well, I mean, the church is not a monolith. It's a lot of things. No, that's true. And sorry, that's such a broad question. I'm just kind of going off of looking at the Bible, looking well, at an error. Uh, yeah, a little bit. If, if we're talking about the gay Christian, I'm going to a little bit fade to gray. <laughs> See what I did there? Uh, <laughs> we would like that. <laughs> well, here's, here's the way I see it. Um, first of all, I'm not sure that the Bible addresses much what we mean by being gay. The Old Testament certainly is against male temple prostitution and some other acts in the New Testament that was common in the Greco-Roman culture of men asserting dominance and over boys, and, and that became a source of sexual gratification, things that in general almost everyone would condemn today. I think that's primarily, not exclusively, but primarily what the Bible is addressing. Um, I don't think the Bible has a whole lot to say about what it means to be gay. The church in general has just, in, in the course of my lifetime, come to realize, you know, what, there are gay Christians. And then we have to figure out, you know, then what are the sexual ethics for the gay Christian? Well, there needs to be some sort of monogamous union. Is it marriage? Well, there's an ongoing debate there. I have exempted myself from the debate because I'm the pastor of a non-denominational church. Um, I just don't feel like, you know, I mean, I can, what do I have to contribute? Um, Our church, it's never been an issue in our church. We have a good number of gay people, gay couples, married couples in our church, 
uh, we've not performed a gay wedding, but neither have been asked to do one. Uh, so it seems to be just kind of healthy. It's okay. People don't make a big deal about it in our present situation. But it is, to be honest, an issue that when our, our church, we don't have a policy. It's not. And for one thing, I, I don't think it, w- it would be hard to arrive at it because th- our church simply doesn't have an agreement on it. And I don't even, I don't even have a particular position on it, except always default to love and mercy and grace. Do you have anybody? I certainly don't condemn any. I don't condemn anybody. Hmm? Do you have anybody in leadership who's in the yes. LGBTQ yes. community? Yes, yes, yes. We do, as a matter of fact. Yep. I, 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 I'm just going to say, as a, as a, as a person who is gay, <laughs> that for me, if there is not a policy on the books, I don't feel safe. Yeah. Truthfully, because I. Well, because but we're, we're not, not starting from ground zero for us either. I have to bring a whole church along with me, and so, right. So Tell people have to make that decision. I, again, right. I, I don't want to act defensively here, but and I don't want to attack but, you. But either. I did. Like, we did have talking. some. We did have a gay couple move to St. Joseph specifically to be a part of our church. So at least that's good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was asking the question about the leadership because I know it's common in some churches who are that borderline affirming will will say yeah, it's cool we have doors open but then when it comes to like you know leading children's ministries or leading s- different groups and stuff yeah. like that or being on the stage sharing stage time it's like there seems to be some resistance to at that. this so point we're live none of it's an issue it's just not an issue it's not something we it's just not an issue awesome. i'm curious awesome. to know because you said that you don't really know if the old or new testament really references no i didn't say um, I, I said in general it doesn't there might be a question about Romans 1, how do you understand that? Um, but, in, but in general, in general, okay, I can imagine like this. I could say, uh, hey, Paul, um, we're going we're gonna to bring Paul back from the beyond, and he's going to have lunch with us. <laughs> and we're talking with Paul, and we say, hey, Paul, I, you know, I passed this church, and I've got, you know, I've got some couples, you know, same sex, they live together, who knows what might be going on, et cetera, et cetera. I can imagine Paul saying, yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. That's just, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, so the idea of being gay being clearly addressed in Scripture, I'm very skeptical that it does that. And even if it did, it wouldn't necessarily settle the issue for me. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm, to me, it's obvious that the Bible absolutely sees no problem in general with the institution of slavery. I mean, Old right. and New Testament. Right. You know, New Testament is slave obey your parents, or slaves obey your masters. And, uh, you know, today that we would just find that abhorrent. Absolutely. So what we identify from Scripture is a trajectory. But as far as same-sex marriage, as Christian marriage, it's, the church is not is not univocal at this point. Yeah, progressive church is more traditional, and I'm sort of on the sidelines trying to be kind. So you mentioned um, a practice that would have been, uh, you know, a, a male, uh, an older male showing dominance over a younger male. Do you know the actual translations of these words, or is that just? Uh, well, you know, I've, yeah, I've studied it, but but I'm not you know fluent in Greek, so I can't just give it to sure. you. But uh, of course. Well, okay, so on the same idea of 
you know, using the Bible as more of like a, you said like a penultimate uh, view of, of uh, I guess, the, the revelation to, of who God is. Yeah. Right. The, the revelation of who God is. The ultimate um, is Jesus himself. So you're saying that, would you say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? How do you feel about universalism? Okay. <laughs> um, by the way, I just finished reading. I don't, it's, hold on here. I'm going to grab something. We're asking you all the easy questions today, by the way. Yeah, okay. <laughs> this, is, this is contraband. You're not even supposed to have this. Ooh. This is uh, oh, awesome. David Bentley Hart, that all shall be saved, heaven, hell, and universal salvation. There it is. It doesn't come out until <laughs> September 24th, but I read the entire manuscript. I finished it last night. It's brilliant. Um, well, the, you, you frame the question. I mean, I, I have 32 draft tweets from this book <laughs> but I can't, I, i've got to say i got to wait till september 24th that's the obligation i have um is jesus the only way to heaven well see even the way that question is framed you're making an assumption that what we mean by salvation is going to heaven when you die that's heaven and hell minimalism that once you frame the discussion in those terms you can't even make we're not going the right direction uh He's coming, not we're going. Exactly. Um, salvation is best understood as a kind of belonging. I don't talk about salvation in terms of post-mortem um, destinies. I don't, I don't think that way. Uh, I do, as, a, as an Orthodox Christian, that's a small O, but I'm, I have a lot of big O ortho, orthodoxy in me as well. But as a small O orthodox, I confess that all that is saved is saved by God in Christ. But who are we to say whom Christ can and cannot save? Um, so I'm an incorrigible Christian, but I don't think that what we understand as salvation is limited to what we would typically define as Christian. What I will say is that Christ is the Savior. Um, hell, I mean, I wrote a in, in the book "Sinners in the Hands of the Loving God," chapter six is a is my statement on hell. It's such a big topic. I don't know if we want to get into it because it just it, here's the problem with hell. First of all, the word hell. I mean, it's it's a it's a Norse word. It's it's not a biblical word. I mean, it's not right. Gehenna. It's not Sheol. It's not Hades. It's not TARDIS. It's, it's uh, what's happened is from from Paul onward, from Jesus onward, hell has picked up all kinds of meaning. Whether we're talking about Dante or the Hell House from the First Baptist Church, and it picks up all these meanings that then we read back into the text. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone said, "Well, Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else." I say, "Yeah, yeah." Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that Jesus, for example, was warning about the great destruction that was impending upon Jerusalem because they wouldn't embrace the way of peace, and the whole city was going to get pulled down into Gehenna, even as Jeremiah, six six centuries earlier, had warned Jerusalem. Um, But Jesus isn't talking about a post-mortem afterlife hell near as much as you think he is. Um, and even when he does, it doesn't fit neatly into the categories that modern fundamentalists like to 
place it in. The two times when Jesus seems to give allusion to something post-mortem in any detail is the story of the rich man and Lazarus and the parable of the sheep and the goats. And there the criteria for not ending up in what we might call hell is how you treat the poor, the sick, the immigrant, the imprisoned, and not whether you've prayed the magic prayer or not. So it's about works. Yeah. Actually, it is. Uh, the, 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 the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is interesting because that was a Jewish folk tale that was already in circulation. We have six versions of it in rabbinic writings. Jesus adds his own twist, adding the part about his concern for his brothers. And so there was already this folk tale about a rich man and a poor man who have a reversal of fate uh, in the afterlife, but Jesus adds this part where the man is now suddenly concerned about his five brothers, and he says, well, send Lazarus back. Well, that's Luke 16. In Luke 15, the, the chapter immediately prior to this, uh, Jesus gives three consecutive parables about lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and most famously, the lost son, that ends with, remember, Remember, Jesus composes these parables because of the Pharisees, and they were angry that he was the friend of sinners, and he practiced radical hospitality. And the parable ends with a boy who's been dead coming back to life. Remember, that's what the father says to the older brother. This your brother, he was dead, and now he's come back to life. Well, as Pharisees are seen dead sinners publicans and sinners and tax collectors and those that have been formally uh, excluded from synagogue life coming to Jesus and as it were coming back to life, does it cause them to repent? It does not. And so Jesus says, look, if they won't believe the law and the prophets, if they won't believe Moses, if they won't believe this witness, they're not going to believe even if someone comes back from the dead because they were seeing the dead come to life all around them. And of course, it's probably also an allusion to his in his future resurrection. Um, but I don't think, for example, that Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, is kind of a reconnaissance report from hell. It's not a voyeur's view of the damned, you know, that we can sit around and say, okay, this is what it's going to. I don't think that's at all what's going on in that passage. So, so, so if you can't preach the gospel without making appeals to afterlife, you can't preach the gospel the way the apostles preached it because they didn't make those appeals. You're basically saying that you believe more in a heaven on earth kind of thing that, that well, heaven it's is all on coming earth. back here. There isn't any other kind of heaven set forth in Scripture. If I ask people, I say, what, what do you know about heaven? Tell me everything you know about heaven from the Bible. And they start listing. They go, no, no, that's, 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 that's new creation. That's, that's redeemed earth. Here's what the Bible says about what we would call... See, so much of what we think about heaven is actually Platonism. It's the world of the perfect forms uh, that has been smuggled into Christianity. The only thing that the Bible really says that I know anything about, uh, the interim between death and resurrection, is when Jesus says to the thief on the cross today, you'll be with me in paradise. That's all. Or, or, well, I suppose that in Paul's to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. That's it. But all this stuff about a new Jerusalem and streets of gold and pearly gates and all, those are images of a, a recreated human society based around following Jesus. And even then, the, the final image is you have, this, you, you have this city that's come from heaven that's the same geographical dimensions as the Roman Empire, 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. So it's, it's the empire of the lamb replacing the empire of the beast, but it's also 1,400 miles high because it connects heaven and earth. 
and it, it's described in many you know metaphorical ways. But remember, it has it has twelve gates, and her gates will never be shut. And what is the what do you hear from the city? You hear the spirit and the bride saying, "If anyone is if anyone is thirsty, let them come. Let them come in. Come. Are you thirsty? Well, what's outside this crystal city? The lake of fire." <laughs> and so, the, so, so you have those that have decided they're going to follow the way of empire, the way of the beast, the way of war, the way of selfishness, the way of greed, and they always end up with their soul in a lake of fire. And so the spirit and the bride say, are you thirsty? And maybe they say, uh, I'm in a lake of fire. <laughs> well, then <laughs> come on, come in. The, the, the gates are never shut. I'll, I'll, I'll close this little bit on hell with this. I am convinced that no one ever, and when I mean ever, I mean ever, ever calls upon the mercy of God and is refused. Now, what it takes for a person to actually reach the point where they can can sincerely call upon the love of God, the mercy of God, who knows how long a journey that is. But I do not believe that the God revealed in Christ acts like this. God, have mercy on me. Oh, so you're just now asking me for mercy, are you? Well, too bad. You should have asked ten minutes earlier. I, don't, I just that doesn't happen. Well, what about the verse that says, you know, you did all these things in my name, but I never knew you? Like, what? What about that? I, yeah, depart from me. And then what? Yeah. And then what happens next? Um, you know, Hebrews says it's appointed that each man die once, and after this, a judgment. Then what? I don't know why particularly Protestants, are so dead set that, that death is some sort of final ensconcement in, in perpetuity. Um, we confess that Jesus Christ has the keys of death in Hades, right? What is, does he only use the keys to lock people up? What about the, the ancient Christian concept of the harrowing, the distressing of hell, that Christ descends into hell that he might liberate people from the domain of death? Speaking of all this, do you believe in a literal hell and Satan? Uh, let's take them one at a time. Uh, <laughs> when, when, when a, I know you're not a fundamentalist, but when a fundamentalist asks me, do you believe in a literal hell? I go, yes, I believe in a literal hell. I don't think you do. Um, I, literal, I mean, a literal hell, I mean, I've, I've been to literal hell. I've been to Haiti. I've been to India. I've been to war zones. I've been to bombed out places in Palestine. So I've seen hell, okay? Uh, when people ask about a literal hell, they're actually asking, do you believe in a post-mortem, I don't know what, spiritual hell? I said, well, I, there, there's a lot to be said about that um, that we probably don't have time for. A Satan, what about the Satan? Hmm. First of all, it's the Satan. It's not like Satan like a proper noun. It's, it's ha-satan, right. Hebrew ha-satan. Uh, Greek diabolos, just like the Spanish diabolos. They both mean the same thing, the accuser. It's not a proper noun. It's not a name. Not a proper name. It's, it's the accuser. Um, here's what I'll say about Satan. And I've got a chapter on that in Postcards from Babylon. But um, Satan is more than a metaphor, less than a person. The Satan is a phenomenon, that is so powerful that it almost probably verges on self-awareness but never comes into true ontological being. For example, uh, we have weather systems, hurricanes, right? 
that are, in one sense, they're relatively simple. I mean, they're created by warm, moist air rising and the rotation of the earth and a few other meteorological phenomena that I don't completely understand. And a storm organizes. And we give it names. We say, this is Katrina. This is Hugo. This is Andrew. We name them, okay? And they are powerful, organized systems that can bring tremendous destruction. But just because we personify them with names, Andrew, Hugo, uh, Katrina, etc., doesn't mean that there's some, you know, person up there riding through the heavens on a broom or something. Uh, but neither but neither do we mean, oh, well, then hurricanes aren't anything. Hurricanes don't exist. You don't believe in hurricanes. I believe in hurricanes. So if someone says, well, well, Brian Zahn doesn't believe in the devil, I absolutely believe in the devil. I believe it is a creation of, it is a psychic, spiritual creation among human beings having primarily to do with uh, accusation, scapegoating, and then on a more macro level, empire that wreaks tremendous destruction upon the earth, and it's very real. But I don't think, and I'm in agreement with nearly all the church fathers on this, that evil, in fact, has ontological being. It doesn't. It is a, it is a tear in the fabric of goodness. So, you know, what, what is a, if you see, if you see a, a fabric and there's a tear in it, a hole, what is the hole? Well, it's literally nothing. I mean, you see the phenomenon of it, but it doesn't have ontological being. It is simply uh, that which is ruining or marring the good. So, yes, I believe in the Satan. I believe, uh, to repeat one more time, the Satan is more than a metaphor, less than a person. It is a phenomenon. Um, or as Stanley Hirewas says, the devil is angry because the devil knows, as the devil must, that the devil does not exist. <laughs> But it would be a it would be a gross oversimplification for someone to say, oh, I you know I listen to Fade to Gray and, and uh, Brian Zahn doesn't believe in the devil. I, actually, I really do. Just not in the way most people think. But not but 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 not in a mythological personified uh, anthropomorphic sort of way. It's been a treat, man. I, you know, I wish we had more time to get into some of these questions. That, like we're getting to near the end, I feel like we could just keep going. I love like just. Like, clearly you've thought about this stuff. You, you I've thought about well this read. stuff. Whether I know what I'm talking about, well, I think maybe <laughs> I might, but I have thought about it. Well, for us, one of the things we're, we're really focusing on is to kind of talk about what to do after deconstruction. You talked about this a lot and that you kind of became, you came to a place that you were like, I don't know, this is not where I want to be a part of anymore. And a lot of us have got to that point. And what we want is to be a place where people can come and hear stories and, and, and get some feedback and maybe some guidance on the next step, whether that is some form of returning to the faith or whether that is stepping away from the faith. Well, I and mean, what advice do you have around that? First thing I would say is that um, fundamentalism is to Christianity what paint by numbers is to art. I mean, fundamentalism isn't Christianity. I mean, I'm not saying that fundamentalists aren't people that could wear the moniker Christian. I'm just saying 
It's not historical. Fundamentalism is a relatively, well, it is, it is a technically modern phenomenon. It is a wrong-headed reaction to the challenges of modernity. Um, so I would just ask people not to confuse deconstructing fundamentalism with abandoning Christianity. I mean, I'm all for taking a wrecking, wrecking ball to fundamentalism. But that's not Christianity, and don't 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 conflate the two. Don't think that the only possible kind of Christianity is fundamentalism. I think that's an aberration of Christianity to begin with. Um, what else would I say? I would say if you have any fascination with Jesus, feed that however you can, and see where it leads. Uh, maybe as simple as just occasionally read the Gospels. Maybe, maybe for a time you think, uh, because you've so many people have been trained to read Paul in a certain way, which I think is basically a misreading of Paul, maybe set it aside. Maybe the Old Testament is just filled with too many chants. Set it aside. Maybe you could just spend some time in the Gospels and then see what happens. Uh, that would be very simple advice, but I would say something like that. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I like that. I like that a lot. As we wrap up, you have mentioned books that are coming out, books that you've written. You've mm-hmm. talked about your church and, and the movement that you've, I mean, that's happening there. Um, what are some things you like to, to advertise or, you know, share with people <laughs> so they can look you up? Uh, I'm easy to find because I have an unusual name. There aren't, all the Zons are in Switzerland. Just a few of us crept over here. I keep thinking about going back, but... <laughs> it's a beautiful country. I mean, it is a beautiful country. In fact, I, I've been to the town where the Zons come from, Toon, Switzerland, and I think, mm. what were they thinking? <laughs> this was, of course, I'm sure they had a reason, you know, they were probably impoverished, but... Um, so if you just get my name spelled right, Z-A-H-N-D, you will find me, you know, I have a blog site called brianzahn.com. You'll find me. I'm active on Twitter where I'm a bit of a provocateur. I'm on <laughs> Instagram where I'm fairly nice. I have a public figure page on Facebook. I don't do much there because the devil lives on Facebook. <laughs> and uh, so I've, I've changed everything Preach. I just said. I believe there is a literal devil and it's Facebook. So, I, yeah, Amen. <laughs> What do you believe about the devil? It's Facebook, and uh, but but uh, but I do but I do have a page there that I occasionally post things on, and I've written uh, eight books in the last ten years. I, in fact, I, I concluded a book. I really have written nine because I finished a book today. Today, wow! Finished yeah, I saw that on called, Twitter. Called the Unvarnished Jesus: A Lenten Journey. It'll be just a smaller book. It's uh, forty-six daily meditations to take us from Ash Wednesday to Holy Saturday. On Jesus, I just I finished that maybe three or four hours ago. It'll come wow, out. Awesome. I don't know when exactly, but in time for Lent next. So it'll come out either the end of this year or or January one, twenty twenty. I I don't I don't know the next. I have the idea. I have a notebook of ideas right here for the next book. I don't have a working title yet. Even I just know the opening line of the book is "Once upon a time, people believed in God." And I'm going to talk about the challenges of a secular age. How do you maintain any kind of vibrancy of faith in the midst of a secular society? And by secular, I'm not using that as a culture war term, but as a true uh, philosophical phenomenon. Yeah. 
So anyway, that's what I'm working on. Well, you've been a pleasure, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you, Omar. You. Um, you definitely got the wheels <laughs> turning, and I can't wait to re-listen to this back because I feel like there's a lot of like just deep stuff. You were kind of deep diving in your stories, and I was enjoying it. Thank so. you. Appreciate you. Really appreciate you coming on, Brian. 